Thank you, Alex. I'm sure that's one of the songs of heaven, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> Revelation chapter 16, if you'd like to turn there. And Mark, was that a, did you say that was a niece and a nephew? Why Dogs Bite Us, Part 2. We seem to enjoy that last time. There you go, Mike and Laura. That's why I want one for you. <laughs> Just missing his cane. If you'd like to copy those pictures, just email me. I'll send them to you, all right? Do through the book of Revelation. We're in Revelation chapter 16. Lord willing, we'll get through quite a few of these verses tonight. Chapter 15, if you remember last week, we set up the last series of judgments, the bold judgments. And Remember, overall, the picture that we have here is the ceremony of turning over the deed of the earth to its, its rightful owner. So everything that we read here plays a part in that wonderful majesty of that ceremony and the opening of the scroll and the reading of the scroll. And all the things, of course, that are going on uh, in the reading of the scroll are then being acted on on the earth by angels. And so the earth is being acted on by heaven. And we said last week that as we get to this final series of judgments, the earth is going to be wrecked. And uh, I think it kind of spins off of what Gene was just saying, that uh, the environmentalists would like for us to make sure there's enough whales and, and uh, uh, furry seals and uh, spotted owls and all the things that we want to hold on to. And granted, we should be good stewards. The Lord has made these things. They are given to us. But quite frankly, the Lord is going to wreck the earth. It is his to wreck, and he can do it if he wishes. He's done it before, and he can also make it back. And so... Uh, there's going to be very disappointed uh, environmentalists during this time. But the earth is being acted on by heaven. End of chapter 15, we see the whole temple area is full of smoke. There's a worship service going on with the martyred saints and the 144,000. They're singing a song that's uh, wonderful to hear and to read. And then we move in and uh, we see the smoke there, the glory of the Lord localized then in the temple area. No one could go in, nobody can go out until the angels have performed their tasks. Now let's look at verse 1. Of chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. So this time of tribulation is considered a time of what? It's considered a time of wrath, right? Uh, we know we were not, according to Thessalonians, appointed unto wrath. It's as we make those connections, we continue to understand that this is not a time when the church is going to be enduring these things. Uh, the scripture is full of these little hints as you go through. This is a time of wrath. The bowls are going to be poured out. Their wrath poured out on the earth. Verse 2, 
So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. And you remember, as we were in chapter 14, the warning to those who uh, would take his mark and worship, uh, the terrible warning to them. But here you have our first bowl judgment, and in your notes you can put down is terrible sores, terrible sores. These, these sores really have uh, uh, two ways to describe them, adjectives that describe them. They're called loathsome, that's the word kakos, very bad sores. They're called malignant, that's the word poneros, that just means toilsome or spreading all over, uncontrollable types of sores. And then the, sore, the word sore, helkos, is the word for ulcer. Now, we find that same word used in a number of different places in uh, the Word of God, and we can see some of those. Uh, we see, certainly see that same word used for the boils on Egypt in Exodus 9, 9 through 11. We see the same word used for Job's boils in Job 2, verse 7. We see the same word used for sores all over Lazarus' body in Luke 16, 21. And so uh, these are these terrible, uh, loathsome, and malignant sores, and they only fall on those who are part of the world's system. So once again, wrath is falling on the earth. It is a time of wrath. It's not the time for the church to be here. But there are believers on the earth, uh, but it only falls on those who have worshipped the beast. So it falls on the Antichrist, his kingdom, and not on believers who are on the earth who have come to faith as a result of the 144,000 witnesses and their offspring uh, who have witnessed. Okay, verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. The second bowl judgment is the sea turns to blood. The sea turns to blood. And you have quite descriptive words here that say what it looks like. Perhaps in our mind we think maybe of a, uh, a wound and we see what blood looks like and that looks like that, but it doesn't say that. It says it became like the blood of a dead man. So, uh, immediately this next angel pours out his bowl. Uh, that reminds us of the second trumpet. If you remember in, Ro in Revelation 8, the time the great asteroid fell into the sea and turned a third of the sea to blood. But this time, it's not a third of the sea. It's the whole thing. And it, it happens immediately. It's a divine type of judgment. One minute, it's normal. The next minute, it's blood. So, very similar to what we saw in Egypt. One minute, it's right. Next minute, it isn't. And every drop of water in the sea will become dark and thick and coagulated like the blood of a corpse. And almost immediately, everything you can imagine then from the microorganisms in the sea to the great fish and mammals are all going to float to the top into a great, stinking, putrefying mass of rotting flesh. And like we said before, the Lord is going to wreck the world. This last judgment set that's going to fall on the world is going to wreck the world beyond, his, beyond anybody's healing besides the Lord's healing. And you can imagine as the, the other judgments have fallen and, and men under the Antichrist system and their resourcefulness, thinking, well, we can fix this, we can get through this, you know, we, we can have hope, we, you know, we, we hang on, it'll work. But here it's just the, the, the magnitude of the judgment is to the point where very overwhelming. That's, I think, the Lord's intent that we get to roll, come to the end of the tribulation period. And you can just imagine then, besides all those things dying and floating up to the top, the impact on shipping... It's going to be pretty hard to transverse the ocean at that, uh, with a, with a uh, consistency like that. And, of course, the beachfront property values will definitely fall 
uh, with that type of ocean rolling up on the sand. And so uh, much to worry about if you're environmentalists uh, and uh, things to be very upset about. Number verse 4, Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. So almost immediately you have another angel pouring out his bowl. And we said that these are kind of rapid fire. These just come one after another. A third bowl judgment is the water sources turn to blood. Now, just instead, uh, instead of just a third of the fresh water becoming poisonous from chapter 8, which we saw, uh, all of the fresh water supplies will be turned to blood, all coming off. And remember, a severe drought from the, the two witnesses in chapter 11, who have now been taken to heaven, but remember, they had the power, Revelation 6, 11, 6 says, the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the water to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. So the two witnesses had that opportunity and power to do that from the Lord when they were there. So they could have had drought and all of these things. And then you get to this time of these last judgments and you have all the freshwater sources being turned to blood. Now, it's interesting that there's some commentary from heaven When this happens, and I'd like you to read that. Look at verse 5. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. Verse 6. For they poured out the blood of the saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. Just these three words. They, what? Deserve it. Those are very firm, direct words, are they not? Very clear judgment. Uh, The Lord knows how to carry out His judgments, doesn't He? He tells us as believers to leave room for the Lord's wrath. The Lord knows how to judge. Um, And I think that this is a very common theme consistently uh, through Scripture. But we see wicked people have consistently shed the blood of believers. And the blood of the righteous continues to cry out to the Lord, just like Abel's blood called out to the Lord. We see all through the Old Testament that as people grew more and more wicked, they shed more and more innocent blood. It's always on the mind of the Lord, the blood of the innocent call out. You've polluted the land with the blood of the innocent. Uh, When we shed innocent blood, we pollute the land with their blood. And there are many reasons why we, of course, are against abortion and the things that go along with it. But one of the reasons is, is because the Lord loves the innocent. He wants us to stand up for the innocent and the blood of innocent call out to the Lord. So um, this is a consistent theme all through Scripture. During the tribulation, the unbelievably wicked generation is going to shed more innocent blood than any generation before that. We're going to see that in in, uh, chapter 17, verse 6. But they're going to shed innocent blood, the blood of the saints, the blood of the prophets. They're going to shed And just like we've been studying on Sunday morning, God's judgments are absolutely correct. They're absolutely right. He never makes a mistake. Completely fair, completely appropriate. And another angel agrees and confirms the absolute rightness of this judgment. Look at verse 7. And I heard the altar saying, so there around the altar, the altar is kind of personified here, but you can use that figure of speech. You know, around the altar, this is what they're saying. Uh, Yes, O Lord, God, Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So everybody agrees in heaven. All the worship that's going on, all those who've been around the throne, they all say exactly what the angel who poured the bowl out says, which is your judgments are right. You killed the prophets, you killed, they killed the witnesses, and they, you have given them, you poured out their blood, you've given them blood to drink. Very consistent theme of scripture. And I want to take a moment just to encourage you on this issue. 
Uh, and it really reminds us of our study in the early parts of Romans when we saw that people abuse the mercy of God who take advantage of and impose on God's kindness and on His grace. Uh, remember Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Remember uh, people who uh, take lightly the riches of His kindness and His tolerance and His patience. Remember, people do that. They take lightly God's kindness. That's, his, that's the word for common grace. They take lightly His common grace. In other words, He gives the people an earth to live on and a beautiful sunrise and a sunset and cool breezes. Whether they're wicked or they're righteous, they get rain to fall on their crops. Common grace, the Lord says, people take lightly His common grace. They take lightly His tolerance, which is the Lord holding back deserved punishment. And they take advantage of that. In other words, the Lord holds back what people actually deserve and doesn't punish them immediately for it. Uh, so you've got kindness, the common grace that God gives to all people. His tolerance, which is He doesn't immediately uh, retribute for what people have done. And then also His patience, which is the time, the duration of the previous two. And so we see that people do that. They take advantage of the Lord and they take advantage of His goodness and they just continue to act wickedly and don't receive judgment and think somehow they're going to be fine. And the Lord says that those things are supposed to lead you to where? You remember the last part of Romans 2, verse 4? To repentance. That's right. Those things are to lead us to repentance, but people reject the mercy of the Lord. And so then the Lord will then uh, give exactly the correct judgment for the infraction. Exodus 21-23. We'll put just a few up here that you can copy down. That just kind of shows God's standards. Here particularly two men are fighting and the results of which is an injury to a woman who's pregnant. And uh, it's God's standard for judicial judgment. How the priest should decide the verdict. And he says, uh, but if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as penalty life for life. So if she's injured, whatever happened to her happens to the individual. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. The Lord knows exactly how to execute the type of uh, righteous judgment and correct penalty for the crime. And can I tell you that we never see in the Scriptures incarceration as penalty for a crime. We see the infliction of exactly what was done to the other person. That was God's law for His people. I understand where we are as a culture and we think uh, things may be cruel and unusual, but the fact of the matter is that the recidivism rate is huge and incarceration provides a home and three square meals a day at that tremendous cost of the taxpayer with no reformation going on. But the scriptures always give an exact eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound. Then in verse 26 of Exodus 21, it talks about a servant or a slave. It says, if a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he shall let him go free on account of his eye. And verse 27, if he knocks out a tooth of his male or female slave, he shall let them go free on account of his tooth. And that, there's just many, many examples. We'll look at a few other ones that just the Lord knows exactly how to carry out uh, righteous judgment. And he gave the priests wisdom in order to do that. This is what you do if this happens. Uh, and then he gave them a way to determine the Lord's will if something was more complicated. And he gave them some other things. But Leviticus 24.19 says, If a man injures his neighbor just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted 
on him. So the Lord knows how to carry out judgment exactly as it's supposed to be. Hebrews 10.26, I really like this one particularly because it kind of it gives the big picture for us. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And just this, if, you've been, if, you, if we've been exposed to the saving grace and saving knowledge of the Lord but have not received it and turn away from it, then there no longer remains a sacrifice. That's the, the idea there, that what was offered as an exchange for sin and rejected, then there's no other thing that can exchange for the rejection of the, that which was offered. Now, verse 27 says, but a terrifying, here's what is there, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Verse 28, that's what remains if you reject this wonderful grace. Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, and so he's calling back then on the people's understanding of what the law of Moses was. So in other words, you've set aside the law of Moses to do whatever you wanted. You didn't let it be uh, the barricade it was supposed to be to keep you from sinning. You set aside the law of Moses, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So in some cases there's death prescribed, and if two or three witnesses saw this uh, infraction, then that death was carried out. You set that aside and did it anyway. Verse 29, How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled under the foot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? And you can kind of see how all those play a part in salvation and basically speaking to a non-believer who's turned away from all those offerings and and the benefit and ministry that would come as a result of those things. Uh, for we know him who said, here it is, verse 30, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. And verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And of course the implication is in what? Judgment. Right? A terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Genesis 18.25, Far be it from you to do such a thing to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the judgment, uh, that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly. And that scenario is where? Speaking of the cities of the plain, of Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham appealing, of course, to the Lord's uh, and, and relying on the Lord's righteous ability to judge and the Lord, once again, confirms to us He doesn't deal with the righteous the same as He deals with the wicked. He knows how to deal with each individually and knows how to do justly. Psalm 51.4, as David is caught in his sin, he recognizes the Lord's righteous judgment and the correct way that He always acts in relation to sin and infraction. Verse 4, it says, Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. In other words, I know that I have done wrong and whatever it is that you do to me, it's always right. Okay, no justifying it, no saying, you know, uh, well, there's some mitigating circumstances here. Just the fact that the, David understood that the Lord always judges correctly. It's a very consistent theme in the Scripture. Exactly what's due is given. And then uh, finally, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 4, Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words, prevail, and prevail when you are judged. The Lord always has the correct answer. The Lord always has uh, the correct judgment. Um, he always is found to be true. Remember the souls under the altar in Revelation 6, 9. This will be the last one. They cried out with a loud voice. Remember that? They've been martyred. They're sitting under the altar. They're waiting for the time when the Lord's going to carry out His judgment. 
And of course they feel that way. Their life was ended unjustly. They were falsely accused and belittled and killed on the earth. And many, many tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands have been killed in that very same way. There were probably people who died today, believers who died today for the testimony of Christ. And uh, these folks here are sitting under the altar. John sees them and they cry out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And of course, the answer to that is Romans 2, verse 4. Um, kindness, tolerance, and patience, right? Those things are long-suffering with the Lord because he wants to lead them to repentance. And so he tells them, he says, uh, each of them was giving, uh, given a, a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. And so the promotion of the, of the witness on earth to the presence of God in heaven is not a negative thing from the Lord's perspective, is it? There will be more, so just be patient, and I'll be patient with the earth. And the Lord is patient with the earth, and he is tolerant and uh, kind to the earth so that they may be related, uh, led to uh, repentance. And, of course, here we see that he is going to carry out judgment on the earth that is appropriate to the crime. Now, the judgment and the avenging has begun, and it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God and living God and the consistent theme of all of the scriptures is that God's judgments are always square with the facts and are true and right. Always square with the facts and true and right. Go to that next slide, will you, William? Now look at verse 8, if you would. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat. And so it just kind of confirms what's going on here. It's heat coming from the sun. So the fourth bowl judgment is a scorching sun. A scorching sun. The Lord is going to cause the sun, which he has set to give the earth light and heat and energy. That's going to become an agent of his judgment. There's already a drought. Sources of fresh water have been turned into blood, that people have worshipped the beast and the image, and they're covered with the worst possible sores imaginable. And they now have this unbearable heat that's going to scorch the earth real. And I just kind of chuckle, real global warming. This is the real thing, all right? And this is really going to happen, uh, not based on greenhouse gases, right? And so uh, not on SUV owners and all of that stuff. But the real thing, the sun's going to be uh, quite a bit hotter, going to really warm the earth. It will, no doubt, uh, because of its heat, melt polar caps and glaciers and all the things that people worry about now will actually come to pass. And I think that's kind of appropriate uh, that they worry about things that aren't really a problem and uh, they really will be a problem at some point. But among other things, uh, I'm sure that it will destroy things like communication links and food sources. And unless you're underground, you're going to be in trouble. And, of course, you probably uh, know who will likely be underground, believers who are trying to flee from uh, the wrath of the uh, Antichrist and his followers, and so they're likely to be there. Uh, but there will be many who will be seeking kind of, some kind of shelter. Amos chapter 9, verse 5 kind of confirms uh, this about the Lord as it praises him. Uh, Lord God of hosts, the one who touches the land so that it melts, and all those who dwell in it mourn. And all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. Just kind of an idea of the waters getting very high. The one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth. He's the one that controls all those things. He set those things in motion. He takes care of all the members of that vaulted dome. All the heavens answer to him and do what he says. He who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth, the Lord is his name. 
And so that praise there in Amos just kind of confirms the Lord has the power uh, and the right to do as he wishes with the earth that he's made. And as he brings his wrath on the earth, he does those things exactly. And so the people on the earth respond to God after those, uh, these four judgments. And so what do they say as a result of the plagues? Now look there, if you would, back in verse 8. And they blaspheme the name of God. So we're not, they're not repenting, are they? They're not repenting when this is happening. They're not saying, oh, Lord, spare us. Please deliver us. But uh, this is being poured out on those who are, uh, have taken the mark of the beast and have worshipped him. And they blaspheme the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give him glory. So they know where they're coming from. They know that the Lord has the power over these plagues. They recognize his authority uh, in these areas and yet they will not repent so as to give him glory. And we saw that in Romans 1, didn't we? Uh, that people won't give thanks to God and they won't give glory to God. Those are two things the world will never do and these folks will not do it either. They will not repent so as to give him glory. And how is repenting giving God glory? It's recognizing that he gave his son as the payment for the sin of the world, that at his own great expense he took and made a substitute for men. And we give God glory when we repent, don't we? We focus all the attention on Christ and his great work on the cross, but men, it says, will not do that. And uh, although they know he has power over the plagues, they won't repent so as to give him glory. Verse 10, And then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and on his kingdom, and his kingdom became darkened. This is very reminiscent, isn't it, of Egypt and Pharaoh. But here, this is uh, the fifth bowl judgment is darkness. It's an important, uh, I think, to note the application of the darkness. And, and because of many of these last judgments parallel so closely the judgments right before the Exodus, this language is important. Uh, if you would, turn to Exodus chapter 10. I'll give you a little, little change that we'll be wrapping up here in a minute. Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. Hold your finger where you are and turn to Exodus 10, 21. This fifth bowl judgment is darkness poured out, and it says, on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened. So, Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. Verse 21 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. That's an interesting way to describe that darkness. So, Moses, verse 22 stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Verse 23, they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. So, uh, stop right there. It's interesting that that is specified in the, in the plagues on Egypt, and then here particularly, this fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And his kingdom became darkened. So those who are of his kingdom, those who are in control, those who are leaders in the kingdom, those are the ones who have darkness, whereas those who are believers on the earth, do they? Not according to God's pattern before. It doesn't appear, and particularly with the language here, that it is on the throne of the beast and his kingdom. And so that's, that's wonderful that the Lord, even though in this wrath, is still shielding the believers on earth uh, who have come to faith during this time from these judgments. This bold judgment is poured out on just the throne of the beast, which would be located in Babylon. And uh, this darkness also extends to his kingdom, everyone connected to the earthly kingdom of the Antichrist. And so what happens? Well, it just kind of talks about their personal frustration, their personal suffering. It goes on to say that their, uh, his kingdom was darkened. The rest of that verse in verse 10, look there if you would, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. 
And so they're going to be in so much pain and torment from their sores and thirst and the burns from the sun and the darkness that can be felt. They're going to cry out to God. And what do they say? Verse 11, again, here they're crying out to the Lord instead of asking for forgiveness and seeking repentance. And they blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. So here they are in the midst of this wrath. It's obvious who it's coming from. Uh, how it can be abated was clear. Just two chapters ago, we saw the angels announcing, uh, repent and give glory to the God of heavens, right? Do this. Uh, turn away. The great, His great wrath is going to be poured out. Turn away uh, from your sin. And they do the exact opposite of that. And I think that this is really a small peak of what hell is like. For me, it's a little bit of an analogy of what hell is like. Everything that good that God provides is taken away, even light, where people think perhaps hell is going to be a place where they'll just kind of fall in with the rest of the people they lived on earth with. I think really, it's really quite a bit different than people may imagine, and the indications we have in the Scriptures seem to uh, confirm that, that uh, hell is the absence of the Lord and all the good things that He provides. And so the sweetness of life that we have, friendships, relationships, light, health, all the things that we would have on earth, part of God's kindness, right? part of His common grace extended to men, all those things are absent. And so just a little snapshot, perhaps, of what eternity in hell, separated from God, would look like. Because the Lord has poured darkness on the earth. He's given them tremendous sores for suffering. He's scorched them with tremendous heat from the sun. And so these things perhaps become a snapshot for us and give us a little bit of an idea what hell perhaps would be like. Look at verse 12, if you would. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up. So the sixth bowl judgment is the drying up of the Euphrates. And the Lord is setting up the end. Remember we said this. As we got into chapter 16, the Lord would be, as he gave us a little foreshadowing in chapter 15, about what, uh, in chapter 14 and 15, about what uh, Armageddon would look like. We, we looked forward into the tribulation as we had looked backward and filled in gaps earlier. We looked forward into the tribulation. We saw this coming. Now the Lord is setting this up. With the judgment, He's setting up this final showdown. So the sixth bull judgment is the drying of the Euphrates. The Euphrates is one of the four rivers that flowed through the Garden of Eden. It's about 1,800 uh, miles long and flows from Mount Ararat to the Persian Gulf. You can go to the next slide if you would, William. Um, no, back up just a little bit, if you would. Sorry, buddy. And I've circled that area of the Euphrates. It's in dark. You can see its, uh, base, its basic direction. Uh, you can see Israel in purple here on the left. And so that river is going to be dried up. That river has its headwaters there or at Mount Ararat. And so, of course, coming off the scorching heat of the sun, it's liable to be at flood stage and overflowing uh, because of the, mounting of the melting of the glaciers on uh, Mount Ararat, which we saw when... Uh, we had that uh, preview of that, uh, the search for uh, the uh, Noah's Ark. But coming on the heels of that scorching sun is probably at flood stage. So this is a real supernatural, instantaneous judgment like all the rest. Like the sea immediately turning to blood. Like uh, all the other things that we've seen. The sun immediately becoming hot and scorching everyone and taking everyone by surprise. Uh, this as well is going to be a supernatural judgment. One minute it's flooding all over the place and everything is swamped. The next minute it's all dried up. It's very like the Lord to do this at the end, to show His power. And the Lord has another reason for this judgment. Let's look and see verse 12, uh, why He's dried up this river, although this is going to be a huge surprise to the world, particularly in the Middle East. He says, so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. 
And so now we're setting up this final scenario, aren't we? And the stage is being set for a final showdown. And there, so there's Mount Ararat. Go ahead, Will, if you would. There's a couple other slides here just for your enjoyment. Uh, some of the uh, tents and supplies for uh, uh, the climbing. But you can see it there and see part of the headwaters there as it comes down. The glacier melts and you see it heads on down, becomes a Euphrates. Go ahead to the next one, brother, if you would. Thank you. Six Bold Judgment, drawing of the Euphrates. And uh, the stage is really set for this final showdown between the Antichrist and Jesus himself. And with all of the earthquakes and the destruction that's occurred, now you have this perfectly dry riverbed. You have roads destroyed. You have all these things, transportation interrupted. Very difficult for anybody to move. And now you have this huge dry riverbed. It becomes this immediate roadway uh, for great armies to use. And that's exactly why it's set up. And so verse 13, you know, they're, they're going to be marching against Israel and against uh, the people of the Lord. And uh, the Lord has provided a way for them to come. How accommodating for him. Uh, he's going to bring them to their judgment. They think that they're going to come and do some great thing against his people and finally settle this once and for all and put the Lord out for good. And he has quite the opposite outcome planned. And his outcome, of course, is the one that will occur. Verse 13, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon. And you kind of get this little picture here. John has this little snapshot here in the middle. As he sees this whole scenario being set up for this final showdown. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Now, who's the dragon? That's the devil, right? That's Satan. That's his, his description here. And out of the mouth of the beast, and who's the beast? That's the Antichrist, right? The Antichrist, so Satan uh, is referred to as the dragon. Uh, out of the mouth of the beast, that's uh, the Antichrist. And out of the mouth of the false prophet, so that's his, uh, that's his cohort, right? That's the, the, uh, the uh, unholy trinity, if you will. Three unclean spirits like frogs. And so, once again, you get that word like, uh, in appearance, they're like a frog. Obviously, they're not a frog themselves, but they appear in that in that uh, that form. Verse 14, for they are spirits of demons. So John is under, be able to understand what they actually are. They are demons performing signs which go out into the kings to, out to the kings of the whole world. So they come out. Uh, they are manifested somehow through these guys. They come out of them. They take on a form that people can see. They're able to perform uh, wonders to gain the attention of the world and the attention particularly of the kings of the world, that they have great power, because that's what they're looking for, right? They're a little, feeling a little, bit, uh, a little bit unsure of themselves, right? Wouldn't you say that the men of the world would be a little bit unsure of themselves, a little bit random, uh, the things that are going on? From time to time, you know, the sun's scorching, the, all the fresh water turns to blood, the sea turns to blood. The, the Euphrates is at flood stage and now it's dry. And so people are a little uncertain. And I think that uh, Satan wants to make sure he shores up the confidence of men. Okay, now we have this great riverbed, which, by the way, the Lord provided for them to carry them down to his people and to bring them together. And so they come out, they do these signs, it says, verse 14, look there, the spirit of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. And so now the stage is set for this final showdown. Much like an unholy trinity, Satan works like that. He always has. He always provides counterfeit to what the Lord uh, provides. Christ, and of course the counterfeit is the Antichrist. Uh, the number of God, uh, 777, the number of men he gives as a counterfeit. Uh, the Holy Trinity, the Unholy Trinity, eternal salvation. And of course, uh, if you align with the Antichrist and take the mark of the beast, eternal damnation. 
But they provoke the kings of the world and in spite of all their suffering, in spite of the difficult times they're enduring or perhaps uh, alleviating it maybe for a short time, it says they perform signs. You can certainly see uh, that the Lord would allow the demons to appear to alleviate perhaps some of the suffering, uh, much like in Egypt where uh, the false prophets from Pharaoh were able to duplicate uh, what or appeared to duplicate what uh, Moses was able to do here, perhaps alleviating them for a short time, perhaps initially to take revenge on the Antichrist. Perhaps they're upset with all his leadership. It just doesn't seem to be working out very well or for his inability to end their suffering. But that rage is going to be turned uh, towards Jerusalem and the Jewish people and the God who defends her. So it's hard to say how there's going to stir up the kings. Perhaps it's just to take revenge on the Antichrist and his kingdom for such a terrible way of leading the world. But anyway, all this wrath is going to be turned towards God's people. And then there's some encouragement to those who are believers during this time. And we'll wrap up with this. Verse 15 and 16. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Now remember, the thief coming, thief analogy uh, never refers to the rapture. Okay, and we kind of get that out of place because we've seen movies named that way. But the thief uh, is always in relation to judgment. Okay, coming like a thief. Uh, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. When you see all this happening, in other words, he's speaking to believers during this time. Uh, The great army is coming, so much suffering, so much difficulty. Be watchful. Why? Because I'm coming, says the Lord, and I'm going to defend you. I'm the one who's going to come. You're not going to expect it, just like a thief shows up and you don't expect uh, him to be there. Uh, It's going to be very much the same way. I'm going to show up and I'm going to defend you. Uh, Don't worry. Verse 16, And they gathered them together to the place which is in Hebrew called Har-Mageddon, and they uh, don't know that this is the great day of God Almighty. They don't know that that's why they're there that the Lord is going to end all of this. And all the world comes to the valley to fight in the battle. Uh, Daniel chapter 11 talks about it. And uh, that's our next Sunday night study. will be through the book of Daniel as we're getting close to wrapping up uh, Revelation. But the kings of the north come down swiftly uh, through the south. The kings of the east come up. Uh, the Antichrist campaign uh, into Egypt and coupled with the siege on Jerusalem. So Daniel fills in a lot of... Uh, gaps for us, but they're all fighting and a great massacre is going on and in the midst of all of this, out of heaven uh, comes Christ and this is the wonderful second coming of the Lord and he is going to come and touch down and he's going to do a bunch of really wonderful things and he's going to begin to set everything right and as the seventh angel pours out his bowl into the air, he says, if you want to know what that is, you're going to have to come back next time, all right? and we'll get back into it and see what he does and what uh, gets said from heaven, all right? Let's bow and be dismissed in a word of prayer. Steve Porter, would you please close us out in prayer, brother?